John chapter 19 this morning. John 19, and we'll begin looking at the Scripture this morning in verse 16. John 19, 16. And I'm only or going to read down from 16 through 18, just a few verses. I had intended when I first started this week in my study to get all the way down to verse 24. But it was pretty obvious as I continued studying that that was not going to happen. So, verses 16 through 18 this morning, John chapter 19, verse 16 says, Then delivered He Him therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led Him away. And He, bearing His cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull which is called in the Hebrew, Golgotha, where they crucified Him and two other with Him on either side one, and Jesus in the midst. Leave off reading there in verse 18. Just as a matter of review, on the night our Lord was betrayed, He was led by a multitude of Romans and Jews out of the Garden of Gethsemane to the religious leaders, the high priests uh, there at that time in Jerusalem, the high priest and the Sanhedrin, the religious council, spent most of the night calling false witnesses to try to find fault with the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, you know the Scriptures tells us that the false witnesses could not agree among themselves. Finally, they uh, announced that he was guilty of death and took him from the uh, chief priest's house onto Pilate and demanded that Pilate put him to death. Both Pilate and Herod uh, determined after examining him that there was no fault in him. In fact, Pilate stated at least three different times, I find no fault in this man. And yet, Pilate had him scourged, and he was mocked by the Roman soldiers. After having him scourged, Pilate brought him once again before the Jews, offered to set him free and to take Barabbas in his place, and the Jews instead said, we want Barabbas, and we want this one crucified. The Bible tells us uh, in further texts that after that, Pilate sought a number of ways to try to release him. But finally, Pilate submitted himself to the political pressure that was put upon him by the religious Jews. Acting out of weakness, acting out of fear, with Pilate brought judgment against the Lord Jesus Christ as we saw last week. And he condemned them, him to death, to the death penalty. Our text this morning opens with the words, Then, after that judgment was made, Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified. Now before we get to this verse, we need to look at a text in the book of Matthew because between verse 15 
of John 19 and verse 16 of John 19, something takes place that is critical. So I want you to go in your Bibles to Matthew 27 this morning. The book of Matthew chapter 27. And we want to read just two verses. Matthew 27 verse 24 and verse 25. Matthew 27, 24 says, When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but rather that a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hand before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. Then answered all the people, and said, His blood be on us and on our children. His blood be on us and on succeeding generations. What an amazing statement. What a powerful statement. And what a wicked statement to make before Almighty God. One of the reasons why Pilate could not prevail in his attempts to release the Lord Jesus Christ was because of the power, the political power, of the religious crowds. In Luke chapter 23 and verse 23, we read the voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed. This is the account of them prevailing over Pilate's arguments that he should release Jesus Christ. He could not prevail in his efforts to release the Lord Jesus Christ. He was afraid to defy the religious Jews because he loved his career and his world more than what was right and what was just. And because he sought to preserve his own life, as we saw last week, had he released Jesus and had the religious Pharisees and uh, council had reported to Caesar, he would have been killed for releasing one who claimed to be a king. Preserving his own life, he turned over the Lord Jesus Christ to be killed into the hands of wicked men. Before delivering Jesus into the hands of the Jews, Pilate took water and washed his hands before the multitude. He is standing, remember, before more than 500 Roman soldiers and he is standing before hundreds of Jews that have gathered at the judgment place. This man, Pilate, takes a basin of water and publicly washes his hands in front of that whole multitude. It is a symbolic gesture with the gesture which the Jews would recognize. By washing his hands, he said, I am innocent. I am innocent in what is about to take place. But was he innocent? He had declared our Lord to be just and without fault. Yet he had him scourged against Roman law, by the way, and condemned to death again against the law. He knew that the Jews had delivered Jesus unto him because they were envious of him and of his ministry, and yet he still condemns him to death. He knew that Jesus 
Christ was not guilty of making himself a king in Israel, and yet he delivered that just man, as he would say, over to an unjust and angry religious crowd. But as I have said, as we've gone through this chapter 18 and chapter 19, and we'll go through chapter 20 and 21 the same way, as I have said, that it is absolutely critical for us as we look at the events open up, as the words spoken, at the words chosen by John to describe certain situations, as I have said, it is very critical for us to keep in mind that behind all of this, God is working out His perfect plan. God is accomplishing His purpose in the salvation of sinners. It is not without importance that the Scripture says, He delivered Him unto them. They had delivered Him unto Pilate. Now Pilate delivers Him unto them. But behind the scenes is a God who is delivering His Son up as a sacrifice for sinners. The book of Romans teaches us that He was delivered unto for us to save us from our sins. What is going on here is the will of God. Peter said in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ has once suffered. What are the next words? The just for the unjust. The just God. The just Son of God. Fully man. Fully God at the same time. There is no fault in Him. He is a just and righteous man. The just is being delivered up by a righteous God for the unjust to take their place at Calvary's cross under the righteous judgment of the Almighty. Matthew says that Pilate said, I am innocent of the blood of this just man. The Jews respond, His blood be on us and on our children. The whole multitude speaks of it. The Sanhedrin is gathered there. That is the religious council of Israel. The chief priests are there. The Pharisees are there. The scribes are there. The whole council is there. And a multitude of Jews. And with one voice, they cry out, His blood be on us and on our children. Later, when the apostles were preaching the gospel in Jerusalem, their message included the guilt of the, both Romans and the Jews in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. On the day of Pentecost, 50 days after what takes place in this account, Peter is preaching and in Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, he says, to the Jews, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken, ye have taken, and with wicked hands have crucified. You took Him. You killed Him. But the Sanhedrin, the religious council, was offended at such a message. 
Early in the days of preaching in Jerusalem, the apostles would include the Jews are guilty of killing the Son of God. That God had sent His Son into His vineyard. And they had said, as the parable says, this is heir, let us take Him and kill Him, and then it will be ours. In Acts chapter 5, Beginning in verse 28, we read about how offended they are. Acts 5 and verse 28, the latter part of the verse, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Well, isn't that what they said before Pilate? His blood be on us and on the succeeding generations. Verse 29, Peter says, And the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you slew and hanged on a tree. You are guilty of shedding the blood of Messiah. You are guilty of shedding the blood of the Son of God. You are guilty of shedding the blood of the Savior of sinners. They had cried out with one voice before Pilate, His blood be on us. We'll take the full responsibility of our actions. And when it come time to preach, they said, you ought not to be preaching that way. You're trying to make us guilty for this. How quickly men forget the words they speak, and the sin they sin. The Gospel declares that all sinners are guilty before God. All are in need of a Savior who has satisfied the law of God on their behalf. All have, are in need of a Savior who can remove their guilt and forgive their sins. That's what the Scripture says. But when the Gospel is preached and men are told that they are guilty of sin, sometimes guilty sinners do not, like to, do not like to face their guilt. They don't like to face the fact that they are uh, in a religion that is contrary to God. They don't like to face the fact that they are in a lifestyle that is contrary to God, that they are guilty before a holy God. And so they rebel against God. Don't talk to us like that. And yet... It is better to face God with your guilt and to confess it to Him than to pretend that you are not guilty before the eyes of Almighty God. Repentance toward God includes the acceptance that I am a sinner in the eyes of God. And that in repentance I see myself as God sees me. And I confess myself as God has said that I am. And I turn from that to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. The one who can save me from my sins. The one who can cleanse me from my sins. I see that God has what God has declared about me is true. And I turn to the only one who can change that situation before God. Take a guilty sinner and... Make it so that they're accepted in heaven's courtroom. You're trying to make us guilty, the Jews said just 50 days later. You intend to bring this man's blood upon us, they said. 
They're still saying that today. Sinners all over the world say that. Yeah, I've said a few things. I've done a few things, but I'm not that bad, preacher. His blood be on us, they said. And very quickly, a few days later, no, we don't want that. That's not really what we want. Then, after that account, where He washes His hands and declares Himself innocent, and they cry out as one mass of people, all the people cry out, then He delivered them, Him onto them to be crucified. It says in verse 16 of John 19. Luke 23 and verse 25 uses these words. He delivered Jesus to their will. What a powerful statement there is made by Luke under inspiration of the Holy Ghost. He delivered the very Son of God to their will. When you look at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, when you look at the events that unfold in the next few hours after this account, and you see the Son of God at Calvary, and you see Him hung between between heaven and earth, and you see what He has suffered for the cause of God and truth and for delivering sinners from their sins, when you see that, what you see from God's perspective is that God is providing a sacrifice that will satisfy the righteous demands of God to save His people from their sins. But what you see from the human perspective is that Jesus has been turned over to the will of men. And when men exercise their will against God, they try to kill Him. They nail Him to a cross. Crucifixion is a demonstration of what sinners will do to God when they are free to do whatever their will desires. Luke 23-25 He delivered Jesus to their will. As I said earlier, they had delivered Him to Pilate. Now Pilate delivers Him back into their wicked hands. But behind the transaction, behind all that is going on, as I said earlier, there is a God who is delivering His only begotten Son to Calvary's cross on behalf of sinners. Paul, the apostle later, writing in the book of Romans, in verse 32 says, He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. God delivered up His Son for sinners. Previous to that, Paul in Romans chapter 4 and verse 25 said, speaking of Jesus, who was delivered for our offenses. Picking up the language of Scripture, the apostles teach us that behind the scene of the Jews delivering Jesus to Pilate and behind the scene of Pilate delivering Jesus to the Jews is a God who is delivering up His only begotten Son, to pay for the sin of His people. Jesus Christ was delivered up to death so that we might have life. He was delivered up to sin 
so that we might be made righteous. He was delivered up to the curse of the Almighty that we might be delivered from the curse of the law. He was delivered up under the judgment of the Almighty that we might be declared justified and stand before God as though there were no sin to our account because Jesus has paid for it all. They took Jesus, the Scripture says. He delivered Him to them and they took Jesus, the Scripture says, and led Him from there to Calvary. Again, we see God under inspiration of the Scripture using the word led. You see, I've been bringing this out since the Garden of Gethsemane, right? They laid hold of Him and led Him out of the Garden of Gethsemane. They led Him to Pilate. Pilate gives them back into their hands and they lead Him to Calvary. These words are critical and important. He is not being driven by a maddened crowd. He is not being dragged, fighting and struggling on the way to Calvary as though He did not want to go, had not purposed from all eternity to go. Every word of God is critical. He is led as one who has submitted Himself to the will of His Father to die for the sake of sinners. He's led. In this is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah the prophet. In Isaiah 53, in verse 7, we read, He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet He opened not His mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. The English word brought comes from a Hebrew word which means to be led. He is led as a lamb to the slaughter. Cattle are driven to the slaughter. They are prodded and forced into the, into the slaughter. But the sheep, you tie a little rope around his neck and just he'll follow you. Just wherever you're going to lead him. And the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, was led. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shears is dumb, that is, he openeth not his mouth. The fulfillment of Isaiah 53 verse 7. Every word of God becomes critical in our understanding of what is going on here in these moments. John chapter 19 and verse 17 says, And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called a place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha. Golgotha. He bearing his, I'm going to add a word here, it will not violate the Scriptures, his own cross. You remember there's two others, right, that are crucified with him. They are bearing their cross. They are carrying their cross. But this is the Son of God. The focus is on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is bearing His own cross as He goes from Jerusalem to Calvary. Remember, brethren, every aspect of what is happening on that day, what happened on that day was that our Lord was crucified 
Every aspect has been revealed already in the Old Testament, either by prophecy or by a picture. Everything is going on. We can look in Scripture and see God had said, this is what's going to happen. Do you remember in Genesis 26, when Abraham took his only son Isaac? Because God has said to offer him. Remember that account? And God delivers uh, Isaac by a ram caught in a thicket. And we read through that historical account sometime, and, and then in our minds we say, well, this is a picture of Christ dying. But have you ever noticed the wording of Genesis 22, verse 6? Have you ever paid close attention to what God said in that one verse? Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac, his son. But what about the fire that was and the knife that was to bring the judgment? That was to bring the death of the offering. What did he do? Who took that? Well, Abraham carried that. The father carried the fire and the knife. But the son carried the wood. Now here we have a picture. God is showing us here this 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 picture of what's going to happen some hundreds of years later in the in in the in Jerusalem where the son of God will have the wood of the judgment of God laid upon him and the father reserving the judgment in his own hand. Remember Every picture, every prophecy is being fulfilled here before our eyes. Remember also, as we read this, that our Lord had taught while He was on the earth that true Christians must bear their own cross. The cross of Christianity is borne by those who are true Christians in the face of the world. A world who despises their God and despises Christianity. Our Lord had taught in Luke chapter 9, in verse 23, He said unto them all, speaking to His disciples, If any man will come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. Again, every word becomes critical as we open up this text. John records that Jesus is bearing His own cross going out of Jerusalem to Calvary. But the other Gospel writers add more information for us. Along the way as they're traveling from the judgment seat to the judgment hill. As they're traveling out of Jerusalem to Calvary. Along the way, the Bible tells us in Luke 23... Verse 26, as they led him away, they laid hold upon one Simon, a Cyrenian, coming out of the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. Now, if you read commentaries, I do. Sometimes to stir my anger against ignorance. Sometimes to stir my anger against error. Sometimes to be taught 
I go to other men. But if you read commentators on this, boy, they are all over the place. Even Jill, uh, Gil, even not Jill, Gill introduces a Jewish fable that the head of Adam was preserved by Noah in the ark and that it was buried at Calvary. The Jews had all kinds of fables. Remember Paul saying that we ought not to be taken in with Jewish fables? You can read about it in Jill's commentary. Jill. Gill's commentary. But commentators are all over the place. But because the Scripture is not real clear, we need to be careful. Okay? First, the Scripture is not clear as to why Simon was pressed into service. Despite that, a lot of commentaries say that Jesus was tired and He was weak and He was not able to carry His own cross and so Simon was enlisted to carry it. Hang on to that thought. It's not accurate. Okay? The Scripture is also not clear as to whether or not Simon carried the whole cross for Jesus or whether or not he was simply enlisted to carry a portion of it. Scripture doesn't tell us. Luke says he carried it after Jesus. Those words become very important in a minute. It is my understanding from what I know of the Scriptures and of Roman law that was being fulfilled in this place that Simon was in fact pressed to help to carry the cross, but he did not carry it because Jesus was weak or that he was frail somehow because Roman law required that the condemned guilty man carry his own cross. It was part of the shame. It was part of the acknowledgement that I am guilty of death. Roman law is, also, is being fulfilled here. So what is going on? There is no contradiction in Scripture. But sometimes you have to really study to find out what is going on. Simon indeed bore the cross going after Jesus as Luke records. The word after in English is a Greek word which means behind Jesus. That is... He followed behind Jesus bearing the cross. This, brethren, if you will think about it a minute, is a beautiful, amazing picture of the life of true Christianity, of true Christians. Those who follow their Lord Jesus Christ bearing their cross because the Lord is leading them bearing His cross. Picture, if you can, as they walk the streets of Jerusalem, Jesus is bearing His cross. Simon has been enlisted to pick up and he is walking after behind Him carrying the cross. So that we have two in procession here going out of Jerusalem to Calvary's hill. What is God showing us with all of this? First, it was necessary that Jesus carry His cross. He is in God's eyes, will become guilty as He bears the sin of His people. 
He who knew no sin became sin for us. And the judgment of the Almighty will be upon Him. Secondly, we are called in the Scriptures to carry our own cross, but not to go our own way with it. But to bear our own cross as we follow Jesus. Those who carry their own cross as our Lord did, do so with one great objective. Go with me over to Mark chapter 8. Look with me in verse 34 and verse 35. Mark 8 and verse 34 says, And when He had called the people unto Him with His disciples also, He said unto them, Whosoever will come after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Me. Four, whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for My sake and the Gospels, the same shall save it. Mark adds that you lose your life for the Gospel's sake. Jesus Christ is going to the cross for, with a message that He had been preaching that He has come to save sinners from their sins. That He has come to die in a sinner's place. That He's come to be buried and after three days will rise again. His focus of life, His purpose for coming was to, was to bring about the Gospel message, the reality of the Gospel message, that Christ has died for sinners. He was buried for them. He rose for them that they might be justified before the Almighty. What's our message? As we take up our cross and follow Jesus. Our message is Jesus Christ has died for sinners, that He was buried for sinners, and He rose again for sinners, and He's in heaven interceding for sinners, and we're calling men to repentance, even as our Lord did in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, and calling them to believe the Gospel message. What Christ came to preach and what Christ came to accomplish, that's our purpose in life. We live for Christ's sake and for the Gospels. But to do so, we're following Christ. And to follow Christ means we have our own cross. I have mine. It's my own. I cannot bear yours for you. My responsibility is to bear my own. You cannot bear mine for me. Your responsibility is of your own. Christ has His own cross. The thief on the right and on the left have their own cross in which they are nailed before God. God's people who follow the Lord Jesus Christ have their own cross. And as we follow the Lord, our life is lived for the cause of God and truth on the earth. Simon was called, and I can picture the men as he picks up and, and he starts walking in the footsteps of Jesus. As he goes from Jerusalem to Calvary. Put the Scriptures together. If it doesn't say it, then something else has taken place. And you can use the Scriptures to say, what else has taken place if it doesn't say that He's weak and frail? That's what we've been taught. That's how it's pictured. Falling down weak and somebody has to do this for Him. That's not the God that we serve. And on the cross at Calvary, 
We do not see a weak, frail, worn out, tired Savior. We see Almighty God in the flesh on that cross, dying according to His will and purpose at the moment that it has been paid for. He's not fainting. He's not worn out and full of... Yes, he, He is in that aspect of a human, yes, but God is involved here. We see no weak and frail Jesus. We see no Jesus on the crucifix as religions portray Him. But still as He walks this trail to Calvary, He has set His focus, the focus of His heart is Calvary. The purpose for my coming is Calvary. The accomplishment of God's will is at Calvary. And He is pursuing it as He pursues the will of God. The Bible says they led him in John chapter 19 and verse 17. And the scripture says, He bearing his cross went forth. We'll end up with these two words. That is, he went forth out of the city with Calvary's focus before him. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 13, verses 11 through 14, we read these words. Paul arguing with the Hebrew people concerning the Lord Jesus Christ's offering. It says in Hebrews 13, for the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Hebrews 13, verse 11. Verse 12 says, Wherefore, Jesus also. God was showing you something back in the Old Testament. As they would take the body of the, the, of the, uh, on the Day of Atonement of that goat, they would kill it, and they would take the body outside the, the camp, and they would burn it. God was showing you something, He is saying to the Jews. Jesus also was taken, was went forth outside the camp. Wherefore Jesus also, that He might sanctify the people with His own blood, suffered without the gate. And then Paul argues, confirming what I believe is part of what I've preached earlier, let us go forth therefore unto Him without or outside the camp bearing the reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. If we're going to follow Christ, we're going to go without the camp. We're going to go outside the city. We're going to go away from mainline religion. We're going to go away from that which is a stench in the nostrils of God. Jesus indeed captured outside the city, not captured, but taken captive outside the city of in the Garden of Gethsemane, brought into the city. There He is judged. But He does not die there. He goes outside the gate to a little rise outside on the north of Jerusalem, a place called Golgotha. 
Lord was led outside the city of Jerusalem to a place close by. A place that was common for the Romans to execute their criminals. A place where criminals were normally taken. But also behind the scenes to a place where the body of the goat offered on the Day of Atonement was burned. Again, we see true Christianity being set forth for us by the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. He takes an Old Testament example. He said, this is what Christ did. And then He says, and us. This is what Christians do. Our Lord is calling us, true Christians, to forsake all man-made religion as He did. The religion of the world cannot save a sinner from their sins. Only God can do that. They cannot satisfy the righteous demands of a holy God. Only the Son of God can do that. They cannot teach us the way back to God. Only the Lord Jesus Christ is the truth. The way, the truth, and the life. He calls us not only to forsake man-made religions, but to forsake the men who are recognized in man-made religions. No matter how respected a religion may be by the world, how respected a man may be exalted by the world, he is not the one that we are to be following. We forsake those to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. In forsaking man-made religion, we come up to the fact that that means we also forsake the world. Our Lord's call to follow Him outside the camp is a call to follow Him as He forsakes the world that Pilate had embraced, as He forsakes the world that the Jews had embraced. As He goes out of Jerusalem to Calvary, He says, now you come and follow Me. It is a going forth onto Jesus. It is a going forth leading the religions of the world to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. It is leaving the world in order to follow the Lord, the world, the world's Lord, and the Lord, the world's King. We may be assured that if we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, it may include some suffering. It did for Him. It did for the early Christians. It may include some loss of things. Or some loss of all things. As it has some Christians down through the history of Christianity. But it always includes the fact that we are the children of God who are loved with an everlasting love. It always includes the fact that we are heirs of heaven and of glory, joint heirs with Christ. It always includes whether we suffer the loss on this side. It always includes a gain that is far more on the other side. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that we shall have on the other side. Let me close with this. I was 
My wife and I were talking about last week's message. And she brought up this. I thought, yes. Why didn't I think of that? God gave her to me for a help. Hebrews 11, verse 24 through 27. By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Verse 36, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasure in Egypt. For he had respect unto the recompense of the of the reward. As Moses grows up, the son of Pharaoh's daughter, enjoying the riches of the world at that time. The best education, the best training, the, no money was lacking. And he comes to know that he's a Jew. And Egypt and all of its riches and all of its power. And he turns his back and says, I'd rather have Christ. I'd rather suffer the reproach of Christ. I esteem that to be greater riches than that. I esteem... You saw, you know his life, right? Poverty, struggle, trials, conflict all the way till He steps off at this world into glory. I esteem that. Walking with Christ. Being a child of God. I see that as something greater than everything the world can give me. Is that what you see? God has given us eyes to see. Is that what we see? As, as Simon takes up that cross and walks in the footsteps of Jesus from Jerusalem to Calvary, he sees something. His two sons are mentioned later in the epistles. He sees something. He knows something. The clamoring of the Jews, the, the rioting in the streets, the Roman crowd. And Simon knows something that the rest don't know. We that's Christianity. Do we? The prophet Isaiah said, Hearken unto me, ye that know righteousness, people whose heart is my law, fear ye not the reproach of men. Neither be afraid of their revilings. Don't be afraid of it. Why? Peter says in 1 Peter 4.14, If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. Seems like a conflict there, doesn't it? Why? For the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That's enough. God's with me. That's enough. God's with me. That's Christianity. God is with us. And the whole world is clamoring for everything. 
We've got God. And they don't see it. But if you're a Christian, you see it. And you may struggle and you may fall and turn to the left and to the right. You may have all this. But it comes back to this. God is with me and God is for me and God is my God. And He's not going to leave me nor forsake me and I'm not going to leave Him. Rise up one more time. I'm going to follow in His footsteps. Come, dear children of God. Whatever the days may hold for us, we have no idea. But one thing is certain. God is faithful to His children. Let's pray together.